Okay, good evening. Wonderful to be with you tonight. So, what is awakening? Well, that's your Zen question for the night. (laughs) But we hear a lot about this word awakening, especially in the tradition of Buddhist practice, as if this awakening was the goal of our practice. We also hear the word enlightenment. Enlightenment. So, two-part Zen question for you tonight. Awakening and enlightenment. What are these things? I remember that the Dalai Lama, in talking about enlightenment, he says, when I become enlightened... And of course, for the, from the view of most of us that, that follow him, he's like, dude, you are it. <laughs> so, but I appreciate his, um, his uh, humility and his willingness to be open to new possibilities about what enlightenment actually is, what awakening actually is. So we've heard over time of the, um, that the Buddha had an awakening, right? He had these amazing insights into the nature of life and to the nature of being, and to the nature of the universe itself. So what are those insights that he had, that he continues to share with us some 2,600 years later through the various teachings? And in the sutras and in the various stories and the lore of Dharma, you hear such things as uh, uh, people were gathered together and his nuns and monks and the lay people and so on came and they listened to the Dharma and they all became enlightened. What can that possibly mean? What is it to what is it to awaken? So I'll say a couple of things about this, and it's one of those things where I'm not trying to tell you what awakening is or what enlightenment is, but it's an interesting thing for us to explore together. And those of us, and you, um, we're all on life's path together. 
So whether you consider yourself a Buddhist or a Taoist or a Christian or a Jain or a Muslim, whatever basic disposition you have around that, there's some way that we're looking into the, the heart essence of life. What is our purpose here? What is the meaning of what is the meaning of life? It might be interesting to know that awakening 2,600 years ago or maybe even 50 years ago or 200 years ago might be different than it is today. Stay with me for a minute. (laughs) The basic recognition and realization of of our true nature, what's often referred to as true nature or Buddha nature, sometimes referred to as the essence of life or the Tao, sometimes even referred to as God. That doesn't change. Emptiness has been the same since the Big Bang. Oh, some 14 billion years to the day. <laughs> so the, the, the nature of, of this being out of which all of this amazing life has sprung from the primordial soup of, the, of our planet Earth, relatively new in the, in the overall cosmos, to the way that we're singing opera or playing rock and roll today. This is an amazing uh, evolution, but it is the evolution of this amazing essence that cannot be named in a certain way. Well, I think that's why... um, Some Buddhists, especially from the Zen tradition or from the Mahayana tradition, will call this emptiness. Emptiness. And emptiness is supposed to be our true nature. Yeah, but words can be, like, hard to understand. What what do you mean emptiness is my true nature? It's, uh, it's just, it's language. It's a way of pointing to something that cannot actually be pointed to. So I know I'm going Zen on you here a little bit, right? <laughs> but part of it is to understand the essential paradoxes that exist in language and our ways of knowing. 
So when we come to meditation, when we come to consider these questions of awakening and enlightenment, often what is what is first purported is to connect with love. To connect with this essence of love, of kindness, of the recognition of our connection and interconnection one with another. With the air that we breathe, with the beauty of this amazing planet, all the creatures that are here. All the life, the lifeblood of the earth, the rivers, the oceans. Yeah. So, in a way, we are looking towards, as we look to this true nature, this Buddha nature, which has so many names. What's your name for it? Some will say, some will call it Buddha nature. Some will call it non-dual pure awareness. Lots of names, right? Lots of names. So in a way, the enlightened heart and the enlightened mind are infused with these essential qualities that in our practice, in our contemplative practice, we nurture. So just as mindfulness practice is not just bare attention, but it is an ethical connection with the development of wholesome qualities of our, of our being, of our human life, right? What's, what's a beautiful, wholesome quality of our potential of our, of our human life? Well, we definitely know that empathy is a really strong uh, connector, And that when we empathetically connect with one another, there is some recognition that we're not just about this one particular human life. Out of empathy often naturally uh, arises compassion. Because we recognize in our in our being, that that suffering is a, a as a is a part of our human life. That we're often separated from the things and the people that we love, and that we're often together with things and people that we don't love. <laughs> so as we connect in that way there is some recognition of this interconnected, interweaving of all of our human existence. 
So in, an, in this way, awakening is becoming more sensitive to, more transparent with this wisdom of compassion. Sometimes wisdom and compassion are talked about like, yeah, there's wisdom and there's compassion. And that's true. It is a naturally differentiated way of speaking about qualities that we nurture. But there is great wisdom in compassion itself because that is a recognition of this connection and interconnection that we share one with another. Not just human life, but all of life. So this wisdom quality is the true um, unconflicted direct knowing of who we are in the universal sense. Actually knowing who we are as beings that bridge this unique conditioned human life that we have And we have to recognize that it's conditioned, right? We were born into certain families. We grew up in certain conditions, had certain education. This is all part of the natural conditioning of of who you are today. Of who we are. But it's simultaneously knowing the unconditioned source that is expressed and shared throughout creation. Uh, A couple of years ago, well, not that long, about a year and a half ago, I took up pilgrimage. I was teaching in China, as a matter of fact. And I went to the lineage home of my uh, tradition. So I don't have just one tradition, but the Zen tradition is Renzai Zen. So the founder of Rinzai Zen wasn't actually Japanese. That's the Japanese name. This was Linchi Ichuan. And Linchi Ichuan was about 700 CE or so. So I had the opportunity to go to this amazing monastery that had a beautiful temple and several temples and and marble statuaries of incredible dragons with writing on them and so on. And on the, um, on the entrance to one of the temples, there were two characters, two Chinese characters. And these two characters said, not that was it 
not to. An incredible teaching in there. So for us to understand that it was pointing to the non-duality of all existence. The basic recognition that the Buddha had, maybe many others had before Siddhartha Gautama. And many others have had since. The quality of the recognition of this essential essence of who we are, this manif- that all the manifestation arises out of, not two. Of course, all of this is um, language. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to something that cannot be reified into a uh, into a thing. It cannot be made into a thing. So we as meditators kind of have to live with this paradox, right? We're looking for something that can't be found anyway. So why bother? So that's not exactly true. You, you can, we can in fact have these moments of awakening. So, awakening is not a thing. Enlightenment is not a thing. It's not a state. So in a way we could say, in part it is, it may be a process. Awakening to the recognition of what um, in the Buddhist tradition we call perhaps the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. The dukkha is a word that means suffering or the unsatisfactoriness of life. Really, our relationship to life. (laughs) Not that life is unsatisfactory in itself. And this amazing, confusing aspect of what what is non-self anyway? Oh, I can't be a self if I'm a Buddhist. Not so. Because we understand that, that this life is that bridge between these amazing aspects of who we are as beings. You are this amazing human being. But that's not all that we are. We are also this source. So, I'm going to read just a little bit of a poem that's called um, The Awakened One's Vows.
So, as I said, perhaps this aspect of awakening is exactly that. It's not just to become awakened. Although that happens sometimes. Sometimes we have these incredible insights into these characteristics of impermanence. That who we are as a human being is not a fixed entity. But it is a process of unfolding. So th- this is a, a line or two. And there are a few that, uh, things in here that I want to highlight for us in kind of this inquiry into enlightenment and awakening. It says, When I, a bodhisattva of no rank, look through awakened eyes at the real form of this universe, all that appears is the never-ending, never-failing manifestation of the mysterious unfolding of truth. Not two. In any event, in any moment and in any place, none can be other than this marvelous revelation of the interplay of this glorious light. This realization has been the transformational moment causing all of our masters and mentors, matriarchs and patriarchs, to experience true freedom and joy beyond comprehension. And then to extend tender care and a worshiping heart to all beings, beasts and birds, trees and flowers, even rocks and waters. This realization teaches us, reveals to us that our daily food and drink, the clothes and protections of life, are this very warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnation of this ever-present living universal mystery. So our practice in this sense brings us to a, to a recognition of this connection and interconnection. And it is not one solid thing. As we practice in the ways that we do, the contemplative practices, the embodiment practices, these are layers of awakening. Yes, I'll bet many people in here have had, you know, what's called a major satori. You know, all of a sudden, you're one with the universe. Or or have some kind of big insight like that. Shall I tell you that I did on LSD when 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 I was a teenager? And, and reading the Vedas under a willow tree. Um, yeah. 
pretty soon, of course, you realize that not more LSD is going to help. <laughs> so that was uh, an important part of my uh, of my awakening and my journey towards uh, towards deepening understanding and these layers of recognition, these layers of appreciation, the cultivation of kindness, the cultivation of insight the cultivation of the wisdom of compassion. So, some of you know that um, tonight was um, originally planned to be, uh, the talk was planned to be uh, the wonderful and amazing Anne Cushman. Many of you know her as a spirit rock meditation teacher, uh, a yoga master, yoga teacher. She created and implemented the uh, mindfulness teacher, meditation, uh, yoga and meditation teacher program here that's gone on many iterations. Um, She just wrote an amazing book that's called the Mama Sutra. So the Mama Sutra is a, a very important voice for, the, for feminism, for the divine feminine in Buddhist teaching. So besides being a great teacher, she is a phenomenal writer, very interesting. Uh, to take on all the subjects. This particular book uh, had a birth time of over 20 years. So, the story of, of love, loss, and the path of motherhood. Anyway, when, uh, when I was talking with Anne, I said, you know, I'd really like to read from your book tonight. Um, and so we kind of looked through and came up with a, with a passage here that um, reflects the, the human side of our appreciation of uh, impermanence. And so I'll read a little bit uh, for you here from the Mama Sutra. So it goes like this. Here's what I realized in my last mini yoga and meditation sessions. You don't need to go to India to visit the birthplace of the Buddha, the awakened one. The Buddha, as in the capacity of the human heart to awake, can be born anywhere every moment. Born of the failures and disappointments and broken hearts and failed relationships and shattered dreams. As much as in the triumphs and successes. Born in my tight muscles, my cramped neck, the poses I try to do and fail, the ones I used to be able to do 
and can't do anymore. When I reject my body because it is imperfect, impermanent, I reject my life. And as I embrace my body, I embrace my life. This fleeting, impermanent, glorious, imperfect life that is not turning out at all as I expected. (laughs) So thank you, Anne. So trying not necessarily to, to answer the question of what is awakening, but pointing to a few different things. Pointing to the recognition of this bridge that we, sh- that we all share as human beings. And that our contemplative practice is meant to help to nourish the wholeness of this, of this life experience. So usually what gets cut back a little bit is the appreciation of the universal nature of our, of our connection. So the connection with mindfulness as a practice, this remembering, because that's what sati means. Sati means remembering. So it's not just about focusing on the breath or having some quality of bare attention and not being able to budge from that for a while. The many incredible practices of mindfulness have to do certainly with the breath, but they also are about remembering the past and the lessons of the past. Being present here, now. And looking to the future as well. Is that new? I don't think so. In Zen we have a saying that goes, there are many paths up the mountainside, but one moon in the sky. What does this mean? That in our own amazing and unique ways, we approach this direct knowing of true nature, of our Buddha nature, of our awakened nature, because that's what Buddha means, awakened one. Well, that's just the translation that we got. Maybe he said, I am the awakening one. Recognizing that not all that there is happens all at once through the filter of this human life. Yeah, so having this wisdom doesn't mean no mistakes. Wisdom doesn't mean no mistakes. This unfolding, this unraveling, this 
releasing, unwinding that we as human beings undertake as we undertake the contemplative practices or the the ethical practices of our of our Buddhism. That takes time, you know. And just because we become more uh, awakened and more appreciative and more generous of spirit and kinder doesn't mean that everything always works out the way that we think it's going to, just as Anne said in her passage there. want to do one more piece with you and then I have a poem I want to read that I wrote for you and then we'll do the most important part of the evening which is our dialogue which is our connection now here at Spirit Rock you may be aware that all the the staff the teachers the participants here we're very interested in social justice. We're very interested in what happens in the world. We're very interested in the problems and the potentials of integral diversity. Deep, a deep and embodied appreciation of the vast ways that we are different and the vast ways that we are the same. So one way that is not talked about very much that I want to just lean into with you for a moment is the different ways that we learn. The diversity of learning styles. You know, academically you have we have our school system which has some really beautiful things to it and it's also essentially flawed in some ways in my estimation because the ways that we learn are many and various and we learn visually we learn orally we learn somatically, tactically. We learn logically. We learn linguistically, poetically sometimes. Sometimes it's easy for us to meditate and to practice in a group. And then sometimes for others, it's easier to practice on your own. So there's no right combination of these things. And in certain circumstances, you will learn and you might draw on different ways that we do connect with knowledge, with knowing. But, not, but this direct knowing of, the, of 
true nature, our Buddha nature, transcends these, these aspects of knowing. And that's why we nourish some contemplative practice. It does not mean that you need to go on retreat or become a nun or monk. I think, in fact, as much as we respect those conditions and people doing these these monastic practices, yeah, it's probably not going to be for more than 1.1% of people in this room. Maybe none at all. Uh, so you know, you you know Thich Nhat Hanh, the the great Vietnamese uh, teacher, was asked one time. Said, "What's the difference in practices between uh, people that are ordained as monks and nuns, and those that are not? Basically, the laity." He said, "Oh, they're the same." It's just easier when you're a nun or a monk. Because your whole life is organized around that. And here we have all the mess of our human life that we deal with while we, while we practice meditation, while we practice our qigong. So those, those aspects of learning I bring those up because I want us to appreciate that we, that we have this aspect of diversity as well. And that some of you went through school and had that logical linguistic thing down and you were considered bright. And others of us, and I include myself academically, learned differently. We learned somatically. I did. I was like a musician, an artist. I still am. I learned through being, through engagement, through somatic integration, through poetry. Through deep heart listening. So have patience with yourself and, be, and begin to understand you know, the different ways uh, that you learn. And then when you engage in contemplative practice, meditation practice, don't think that you need to uh, you know, uh, do a four-month meditation retreat or a three-year meditation retreat. Or even a 10-day. <laughs> For some people, these kinds of practices work very well. For others, not so, not so much. It doesn't mean that you're any less of a practitioner. When you honor your way of learning, your way of being... Okay, so I hope those are some some uh, 
Zen questions for you, some Zen koan for you, that as part of our ongoing awakening that you will consider. I'd like to um, read a poem for you that I wrote yesterday and finished off today, thinking about our time together this evening. And then I want to open it up for some dialogue. Dialogue is, is just that. It, it's not about Q&A. It's not, you know, necessarily. You may have some questions. I may be able to answer them. <laughs> I may not. <laughs> but um, we'll have a few minutes of, of that before we end. So. This is called The Song of the Phoenix. I am the phoenix, the one arisen from the flames of the sorrows of this life, reborn from the ashes of destiny. The relentless arrow of time pierces the veil of permanence to reveal the inevitability of change. Even in the celebration of the beauty and poignancy of all that this human life holds dear. My home is the unborn and unconditioned expanse of pure being. And yet, My wings are made of the timeless diamonds of love and caring, profoundly connected and deeply attached to all that is. The nature of my spirit is the nature of your spirit, free and uncontrived. Bright as the radiance of the galaxies and clear and vast as the space that holds them all. My most precious possessions are the colors of the rainbow, the dewdrops on the morning glories of earth, the lightning of the summer sky, the taste of night, and the breath of ocean waves. Do these really belong to me? Of course they do. Of course they do. And they are yours as well. Priceless and irreplaceable, strong as a sunbeam, and fragile as a spider's web. In my heart of hearts, I know that, really, I belong to them. To the rainbow and to the dewdrops, to the earth and to the sky. We are the same. These wings of freedom called wisdom and compassion. Luminous emptiness and life energy manifested. All radiant wonder, alive and inseparable. Now, enjoy the full moon of radiant awareness. 
That's for you, my dear ones. So we can take just a few minutes now, and I know that our uh, wonderful volunteers here this evening will pass a microphone around. If there's something that you would like to share, some reflection, uh, comment, or question that you have about uh, what we've engaged with tonight, very happy to hear that. We'll do this for just a few minutes before completing our evening. So if there's something, go ahead and raise your hand. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tashi. Uh, I'd like to uh, make, make a statement in the form of a question, uh, and, and, it's, and it's this. Uh, before we can aspire to an authentic self... <laughs> Yes. Uh, can we lay claim to something more primordially authentic, such as an authentic being? Nothing defines your existence more than your being. Uh, should not be taken easily. And because being is unbidden, because it comes to us, and through us, for no reason, there's no causation. It seems to me that the simple A and the B of the very root of our being is that extraordinary place of truth. And it's the very truth that we long for, particularly in these days. Something, something so fundamental that it will lead us to a greater aspiration to follow it, to believe in it, to believe in its autonomy, its authenticity, and then to seek the God, then to seek a higher self, or a more, not higher, more authentic self. But I think it's important we ask the question about our very beginnings, because everybody here is a being. What does that mean? Yes. That's my question. A Zen question for the Zen master. <laughs> Beautifully said, though. I want to I thank you for your, for your comment. And in a way, there's, there's nothing to say about that. You have already laid out kind of the course of your inquiry in a very beautiful and articulate way. And as I said earlier, many paths up the mountainside, one moon in the sky. So the way that you approach this integration, this coherency, this wholeness, that's beautiful, precious, and unique to you. And if any of these practices that we do uh, support that, so much the better. So thank you very much for that.
Hi. Hi. So I appreciated it when you said that uh, even people who have wisdom make mistakes. Um, and also just the, the phrase of the wisdom of compassion. And um, I'm, I'm a beginner in this realm, and I'm curious what some thoughts are within Buddhism about self-compassion when one makes mistakes. And I, I'm familiar with meditations where one is directing love or care toward the self and others. Uh, but what about forgiveness? I'm just curious. Yeah, about forgiveness. Great. Forgiveness is an important part of this path. Um, as my friend Jack Cornfield sometimes says, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. <laughs> so there's a, there is, we're with a sense of tolerance without guilt and yet accountability for our actions. That's important. The ethical component is important. But don't get lost in self-blame or, or regret in that way. Um, see, the, see the big picture. See that we're in the evolution of, our, of this awareness, this awakening which is different now for us in this time than it was for the Buddha in his time, or Nagarjuna, or any of the wonderful teachers in China and the United States and Europe and, you know, uh, all over. So have the, have the big picture, you know. Accountability is important, but move past uh, the sense of uh, any regret yeah, that, that would be my counsel. And I really appreciate your beautiful question. We can perhaps do one more and then we'll, com- then we'll complete the evening together. Someone in the back there. Hi. Hi. Um... You were speaking earlier about the concept of not to. Mm. You, you, in fact, you called it a non-duality. I, I'm not sure what the what the how it was being described, but would another way of saying that be instead of not to, it is one. Were you describing perhaps oneness, or were the two things? Um, were they concepts or? Yes. You know I, mean? I think this is your koan. <laughs> so we use, we use words, we use language to point to something. So non-duality, this thing that on Lin Chi's temple said not to. Uh, it's not just a concept. It's pointing to non-duality. Now, is there non-duality and duality? Only in language. 
we live in a field of pure essence of non-duality. This is the, this is the quantum coherence of modern science. The interlacing of the web of life. So I really appreciate your your inquiry. And it is not something that someone else can answer for you. But I really invite you to stay in the question. Not necessarily seeking for one definitive answer, but, but looking for a direct embodied knowing. All right. Okay. You guys have been wonderful tonight. Thank you so much. A real privilege and pleasure to be here. I want to thank my American Sign Language interpreters and those that are here to use that beautiful facility. This practice has, uh, and this talk has been streamed throughout the world. So maybe my friends in Hong Kong uh, of which it's probably about noon over there right now, are watching. I doubt if any of the folks I know in Europe are staying up for it, but maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll watch tomorrow. <clears throat> anyway, much love to you all, and uh, thank you for coming tonight. Uh, look forward to seeing you at another time. Travel safely and enjoy the full moon of your pure and radiant awareness. Mm-hmm.